I'm so thrilled to be able to share uh, from the scriptures with you all today. If you don't have a Bible, know that we have Bibles on the table in the back here. You can go grab one of those. The same thing is true in West Seattle. If you don't have a Bible, I encourage you to slide to the back and and grab one of those. Let it be our gift to you if you don't own a Bible as you uh, open it up and study the scriptures with us over these next few moments. So if you do have your Bibles, open up to Luke chapter 2 as we continue our journey through the gospel of Luke, a story for sinners and sufferers like us. And we come today to the passage that portrays the circumstances surrounding the birth of Jesus. So when you get to Luke chapter 2, look at verse 1. I'm going to read for us and then we will dive right in. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. This first registration took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So everyone went to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Because he was of the house and family line of David to be registered along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was pregnant. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Then she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him tightly in cloth and laid him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. Now, I can't think of a greater sense of joy than that which accompanies uh, the birth of a child in the world. I have fond memories of welcoming Delaney and Asher and Adeline into the world. But it is a strange joy because I'm told that giving birth is hard. At least that's what Kim has said multiple times as we talk about what's worse, that or having appendicitis or whatever the case may be. I think right now she's winning that debate as giving birth seems to be a pretty intense experience. As you know that a human being is growing in the womb for nine months and that puts a lot of stress and strain on the body. A lot of discomfort. And then when your body gets ready to deliver the baby, you start experiencing contractions that are intense and then the whole thing begins to unfold in a rather painful, uncomfortable way. But when those moments of struggle and pain pass, the cries of a newborn child fills the air. And when that happens, joy does too. Joy rises in the room when a child is born, when a child is birthed. Now the Apostle Paul, he compares the discomfort and pain that accompanies life in a fallen world to a woman giving birth. He says about creation, he describes creation as though it is groaning as uh, with labor pains. Now, when I was in the room with Kim as she was delivering our children, she was rather quiet. Uh, She was focused while giving birth. She'd squeeze my hand and and close her eyes and she'd groan, but her groans weren't very loud. But there were ladies in other rooms in the maternity ward that did groan loudly And those sounds just kind of haunted my dreams for the next few weeks as I would try to sleep and the echo of that intensity was filling my imagination. But when those groans cease and the the intensity of that pain stops, a quiet, palpable joy begins to take its place. A sense of relief and rest kind of calm the nervous feet that are pacing the waiting room as grandparents and aunts and uncles and siblings and friends are hanging out waiting for this child to be born. And then when it does, everyone starts to celebrate the new life that has been brought into the world. And the groans 
give way to a type of glory. The, the pain is replaced with joy and pleasure. Well, that is the pattern of our redemption as well. The pattern of redemption is groaning, then glory. It is pain, then joy. This is what Paul is getting after in Romans chapter 8 when he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed. Creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Not only that, but we ourselves eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Now this future redemption, this relief that will come over the new heavens and the new earth when all is said and done, this future redemption is available to us because of the birth of Jesus. Because when Christ entered the world, he came to secure our salvation by living the life that you and I could never live, one of perfect obedience. Dying the death that sinners and sufferers were destined to die had Christ not stepped into our place and took the hit our sins deserved, covering all of that for us. And then, of course, you know the story. Jesus didn't stay dead, but three days later, he rose from the grave, conquering sin, Satan, and death, securing our salvation in his first coming. But we're also told in the scriptures that a second coming is, is going to happen, that Christ will arrive again. And when he does, he was not coming to secure our salvation. He's coming to settle it once and for all. As he removes all hint of sin and sorrow from our existence. And we enjoy being with him in a renewed paradise all over again. This is what's referred to as the comings or the advent or the arrivals of Christ. And you and I live between these two moments. Between the first arrival where he secures everything. And the second arrival where he will settle everything and as we kind of live between these two realities in the midst of all the groaning and the struggles of life in a fallen world, we do so with, a, with an eager anticipation. We are looking forward to the day when all is made right and all is made new. And as we look forward to that moment, a, an everlasting joy begins to rise in our souls. And we experience in varying degrees the joy that the birth of Jesus affords us as we journey through this life. Now you can imagine Joseph and Mary eagerly anticipating the birth of their firstborn son. The excitement that surrounded the fact that this child would be born and they would have the joy of raising this son. But I suspect that they would have preferred more accommodating and more comfortable circumstances to welcome him into the world. I suspect that they would want something different from what they walked through and what they experienced here in Luke chapter 2. Because as their due date approached and they were getting she was getting ready to give birth, they catch wind of this decree that was passed down by Caesar Augustus. A decree that required the whole empire to be registered. Now, this decree came from a guy referred to as Caesar Augustus, but Caesar Augustus isn't a name, it's a twofold title. Caesar is a reference to the ruler of the Roman Empire, while Augustus is an adjective that refers to someone who is highly regarded, someone who is highly esteemed. And at the time, this title, Caesar Augustus, belonged to a man named Gaius Octavius. 
Now Gaius Octavius was the grand nephew of Julius Caesar. When he was born, Julius Caesar took a liking to this child and actually adopted him to be his son and appointed him to be the heir of the Roman Empire. Now a lot of things transpired before, uh, transpired before that day came, including Julius Caesar's assassination, which launched a civil war. But eventually his wishes were fulfilled and the Roman Senate voted to make Gaius Octavius to the, the Caesar Augustus, the revered ruler of the Roman Empire. And when that happened, this guy became the most powerful person on the planet. And he was powerful. In fact, the reason the Senate wanted to vote him in is because he showcased his strength when he defeated Mark Antony and Cleopatra in the civil war that had broken out. And so this guy, Caesar Augustus, he was the most powerful person on the planet. So when he issues a decree, you better listen to it. You better do what he says to do. And so he issues a decree that everyone under Roman rule had to obey. And, and this decree reached all the way to the podunk town of Nazareth. And it intruded upon the lives of Mary and Joseph. For that's where they lived at the time. But... Nazareth isn't where Joseph was from. Joseph is from, a, his hometown was a place called Bethlehem. Bethlehem was known as the city of David because that was where the family line of Israel's greatest king in the history of the world, their greatest king up to that point, that's where he was born and that's where that lineage started. Well, Joseph was a part of that world. He was from Bethlehem and he was somehow connected to the line of King David. Now, what's interesting about this moment is that many years prior, a guy named Micah stepped up and he would prophesy that the Messiah, the anointed one, the, the savior, the, the coming king, that he would be born in Bethlehem and he would come from this family sacred line. So Micah chapter 5 verse 2, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you were small among the lands of Judah. One will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity, from ancient times. So there's this prophecy that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem and he would belong to this family line. Now be sure to pick up what Luke is putting down. We got to pick up what Luke is putting down in this passage because this earthly decree that came from Caesar Augustus, this earthly decree would actually serve an eternal design. It would serve an eternal design in the sense that the sovereignty of God would co-opt this moment to bring the Messiah to the place of his promised birth. And Caesar Augustus, the most powerful person on the planet at, in the known world at the time, this guy would prove to be nothing more than a pawn in the grand schemes of God. This is why Proverbs 21 would tell us a king's heart is like channeled water in the Lord's hand. He directs it wherever he chooses. So Luke frames the birth of Jesus in such a way that showcases the sovereignty of God. Now the sovereignty of God, it should be a key source of joy for people of faith. But understand when I talk about the sovereignty of God, we're not talking about the sovereignty of any kind of God. Because the sovereignty of a bad God would be terrible. No one wants a bad God to be in control of all the happenings in this world. No, when we talk about the sovereignty of God and why, is it, why it's a key source of joy for people of faith is because the one who is sovereign is the one who is good. 
the one who is graceful, the one who is merciful. We're talking about the sovereignty of a God who intends good for all of his people. The type of God who is benevolently bent to bless those who trust in him and to right everything that's wrong in the world. This is the kind of God we have. And Luke is showcasing the sovereignty of this God. So history. History is heading towards a glorious future for all of God's people. And as history is moving in that direction, understand that no one will be able to stop it. Not even the most powerful person among us. And when all is said and done, it will show that everyone will in some way serve the eternal designs of God. Some people will serve the eternal designs of God like Luke. They will do it wittingly by cooperating with the will and the purposes and the plans of God by living a life of faith and obedience. Others like Caesar Augustus will serve eternal designs in an unwitting way. And so Caesar Augustus has issued a decree flexing his muscle in the land that is. And, and it turns out that his earthly decree is serving an eternal design because there is a sovereign God who is at work in the world. And he's moving history towards a great and glorious end. But in the meantime, sometimes those moments where powerful people in the world kind of flex and they issue decrees, and they make demands of people, sometimes those, that flexing and those demands, they create a series of inconvenient events for us. They, they kind of make life hard and challenging. Well, you can imagine the impact this earthly decree had on Mary and Joseph. Because this earthly decree required them to take an inconvenient trip. They had to go on a trip that neither of them probably wanted to go on. They had to pack their bags and ready their donkeys to endure about a 65-mile trek from Nazareth in Galilee all the way to Bethlehem in Judea. And it wasn't an easy trip. Verse 4 says that they went up from the town of Nazareth. Now, directionally, Mary and Joseph traveled south. But as they traveled south, they gained an elevation because the city of Bethlehem rested on a hilltop. And so they literally went up. They had to gain elevation in order to get to their destination. You can imagine how difficult that would be for an expectant mother. Yet this is the trip Joseph and Mary are forced to take. But it's a trip none of them likely wanted to. They had to as a result of this earthly decree. But what they will find... Perhaps reflecting back on these events that transpire is that this earthly decree would serve an eternal design. And there is joy to be had in that realization. I remember about six or seven years ago, I was at home with the kids expecting Kim to walk through, walk through the door at 9 p.m., which she did like clockwork every Tuesday night after spending some time going bouldering with friends. Well, a few minutes after 9, Kim hasn't shown up yet, and then I hear a loud noise outside the house. 
a loud noise that kind of shook the walls of the living space I was in. And so I walked to open the front door and I found this big 18 style van crashed up against our house, leveling a fence. I could kick it from the porch. And then I looked to the right and I see the car that I assumed Kim had taken that day was pushed about 20, 30 yards down the street and there was a sports car kind of rammed underneath it, just crushed and a shirtless man kind of fell out of the car and took off running into the woods. A few moments later, the police surrounded the house and came on the scene and rushed in the moment. There was some sort of high-speed chase and my house provided the finish line apparently and And I step back and I'm looking at the scene and and my heart starts to pound as I'm worrying about Kim, wondering if she had been harmed by all that was taking place. I remember stepping off the porch and walking around this van and taking a deep breath as this rush of just negative emotions began to fill me up as I was fearing the worst. And I started looking around the van and I even peeked under with my heart pounding and fortunately didn't see anyone or anything and So I stood up and I went back to the porch and I sat down and I tried to collect myself and and get my composure. Then a few moments later, Kim pulls up in our other vehicle and she pulls up and she gets out of the car and she's carrying a bag of taco time, which is something she sometimes did on Tuesday nights. She would swing by the drive-thru at taco time and and get dinner and come home. and, And she came over and she's trying to figure out what's going on. We sit down and it turned out that the reason Kim didn't show up when she normally did is because when she ordered her food from taco time, she opened the bag and found that they left out her tater tots. Now, I don't know why a taco place is going to serve tater tots, but that's a whole other story for a whole other message. But apparently this place has tater tots and they forgot hers. And so what that required her to do was to take a second trip around the drive-thru and nobody likes to do that. And she had to go back through the drive-thru. And as she was waiting in the drive-thru a second time, she saw cop cars flying by, not knowing that they were heading to the scene at her house. And so we sat down and we began to talk about what was happening. And, and in that moment, we thanked God for missing tater tots. We thanked God for the irresponsible teenager who didn't get the order right. But we thanked God for that moment because in our minds... The inconvenience of having to go through the drive-thru a second time, it delayed Kim just long enough so that no harm was done. God is sovereign over every inconvenience. He is sovereign over every inconvenience and perhaps one day in heaven a highlight reel will be played And we will see all the ways that God leveraged inconvenience to further his plans and his purposes for our lives. I suspect taco time would be on that reel for us. And I suspect having to travel to Bethlehem would be on that reel for Mary and Joseph. So they had to go on an inconvenient trip. But then you notice they also had to do it at an inopportune time because Mary is about to give birth. And we are told that while they were there, that is in Bethlehem, the time came for her to do so. And the situation wasn't ideal. She, whatever birth plan she came up with, it's flown out the window. Her, she's far from home. Her midwife is back in Nazareth. The playlist she put together to help her with her breathing and to serenade the birth of her son, that playlist is nowhere to be found. The timing's not right. Nothing is going as planned. 
She's far from home. She's tired from travels. And now her baby is coming. It seemed like an inopportune time for him to do so. This wasn't the right time for her to go into labor. But the timing of an eternal God is always right. The timing of an eternal God is always right. There was a man named Buck O'Neill who wrote an autobiography where he talks about being what it was like being a black man who played professional baseball before uh, African Americans were allowed to play in the all-white major leagues. By the time the color barrier was, was, broke, was broken in 1947, O'Neill and his playmates were too old to step into that league. And so many of his friends kind of grew bitter about their missed opportunities and some of the things that would have come along being able to play in the major leagues. But O'Neill was a man of faith. He was a man who had a relationship with the God that we're talking about this morning. And he writes in his autobiography these words. He said, at a reunion of Negro League players in Ashland, Kentucky, a reporter from Sports Illustrated asked me if I had any regrets coming along as I did before Jackie Robinson integrated the major leagues. And this is what I told him. Waste no tears for me. I didn't come along too early. I was right on time. I don't have a bitter story. I truly believe I've been blessed. And the title of his autobiography would affirm sort of this this everlasting joy that was rising in his soul as he considered the sovereignty of God and how the timing of an eternal God is always right. So he would title his autobiography, I was right on time. Well, Jesus could have said the same thing about his birth. Mary and Joseph could have said the same thing about giving birth and going into labor in Bethlehem because the timing of an eternal God is always right. Paul would affirm this in Galatians chapter 4 verse 4 when he says, when the time came to completion, other translations might say, in the fullness of time or when when the time had come or in the right moment, God sent his son. Born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. See, Mary and Joseph are experiencing circumstances that no one would have chosen, no one would have pursued. They have to take an inconvenient trip at an inopportune time, but then there's something gets even worse. Because when they get to Bethlehem and she goes into labor, they're looking around for a room at the end trying to find a place to stay so that that whole experience can go down and there's nothing available to them. And they find themselves in an inhospitable town. Verse 7. And then Mary gave birth to her firstborn son and she wrapped him tightly in cloth and laid him in a manger. Because, here's the reason, there was no guest room available for them. Now, to me, this is the most surprising detail concerning the birth of Jesus. It's the most surprising moment about his birth. Because as we've established in what Luke is putting down in this passage that we're trying to pick up, that is God is sovereign. And that he is working through this earthly decree in service of his eternal design to bring Mary and Joseph to the right place so they can give birth at the right time. Now, if God is big enough to do all of that, surely he's big enough to make sure there was a room at the inn in Bethlehem. 
Surely he could have covered that detail if he desired to. You think he would do that for his son. But there's no room for him. There's no room for Mary. There's no room for Joseph. Instead, Mary is forced to give birth in a stable. And when Jesus is born and wrapped in tight cloth, she has to put him in a manger, which is a filthy feeding trough. So she's in a place where animals live that no doubt smells like a place where animals live. She's looking around and can't find a crib to place her son in. Instead, she finds a manger, which is a trough that animals eat out of. So animals are drooling over this all the time and slobbering over this all the time as they're eating the food. No wonder she wrapped Jesus up in a tight cloth. Keep him clean to some degree as she would lay him in this moment. Surely God could have done better for his son. Unless there was design to the inhospitality of Bethlehem. Unless he was working out a different kind of purpose. And so what you and I want to think about today is that Jesus entered the world in the same way that he would experience the world. That this inhospitable town would signify the inhospitable world that did not stand up and welcome the Christ child into, into it. But instead showed no hospitality to the God who created the world in the first place. This is why John would write what he does in John chapter 1 verse 10. Jesus says, but I was in the world and the world was, or he was in the world and the world was created through him. And yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. That the inhospitable nature of Bethlehem is a reflection of the inhospitable nature of the world that is in rebellion against her maker. And Jesus would later say as he's experiencing this time and time again, as he's growing up in this world, as he's walking through this world, he would experience it to be an inhospitable place. He would say in Luke chapter 9, foxes have dens and birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And Jesus lived his life that way. And then you come to the end of his days and there was another earthly decree issued. Another earthly decree that didn't require Jesus to take an inconvenient trip at an inopportune time to an inhospitable town. Instead, it was an earthly decree that would sentence Jesus to death as there was a powerful person named Pilate. And Pilate listened to the will of the world as people clamored for Christ's crucifixion. As the world did not receive the Christ. Instead the world rejected the Christ. And so Pilate would give in to the people's desires and he would issue an earthly decree. And Jesus would be called to go to a place, not a place like Bethlehem, but he would go to the place called the skull. And there he would be nailed to the cross between two thieves. As he's hanging on the cross, the inhospitable nature of the world would show itself as he was stripped of his clothing. And then his life and his ministry would be mocked as a sign was placed over his head, mocking him, saying, this is the king of the Jews. And then at noon, we're told that darkness would cover the whole land for three hours. And Jesus called out from the darkness, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. And the Christ child 
breathed his last breath. Think about it. All of the pain, all of the groaning, all of the sorrow, all of the suffering that Jesus experienced was the result of an earthly decree. But it was an earthly decree that served an eternal design. Pilate said, you must die. The heavenly father said, you must die. And this earthly decree would serve an eternal design that the Lord was working through all of these dynamics, flexing his sovereignty in a way that would benefit and bless all who had come to trust in Jesus. That through this moment, sins would be forgiven, hope would be established, salvation would be secured, and one day salvation will be settled. This is why Jesus says in Mark chapter 10, whoever wants to be great among you will be your servant and whoever wants to be first among you will be a slave to all. For even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus wittingly cooperated with the will of his father. Pilate unwittingly cooperated with the will of of Jesus' father. So you have in the birth of Jesus the same thing that you have at the cross of Christ. Earthly decrees, eternal designs, moving in the same direction. All serving a purpose that would establish joy in the hearts of those who would wittingly put their faith in Jesus. Those who would come to know Christ as Savior and Lord, no longer rejecting him, but welcoming him. So that our hearts wouldn't prove to be an inhospitable place to the Christ. Our hearts would open up and we would welcome the Savior in. He would make his home by his spirit in our lives. This is why in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich for your sake, he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. And by that, he means Jesus was lowered so that you could be lifted. Jesus was brought down through the cross so that you might be brought up out of the grave just as he would be three days later. See, earthly decrees and eternal designs, ultimately they serve the everlasting joy of God's people. As the Holy Spirit tunes us into these realities and we live in light of them, this is why we have a joy that is subterranean. We have a joy that no experience in this world can ultimately take away from us. Because we have a God who is sovereign. We have a God who is good. We have the kind of God who can do the things Paul says in Romans chapter 8 when he talks about the world is groaning as and labor pains looking to see redemption revealed fully and finally. And in that same chapter, Paul would say that this God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And all things there means all things. Good things and bad things. Every inconvenience. Every inopportune moment. 
Every experience of inhospitality in this world, God works it all together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. This is why we worship Jesus. This is why we trust in God. Believing that he is for us in every moment of every day. Believing that he's moving us towards a great and glorious end that he guarantees will happen when Christ comes again. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, would you give us grace to consider all that Jesus lived for, all that he died for, all that he rose from the grave for. Would you give us grace to to rest in the fact that you will one day return and right all that is wrong in the world. We thank you, God, for being sovereign, for being in control. And we trust you with how our lives are shaking out now and how they will shake out in the end, all for our everlasting joy and your incredible glory. God, we thank you, we love you, and we pray this now in Jesus' name.